Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we discussed the first week of the U.S. Open this year, and this week we'll be recapping the last few rounds, the final, and the tournament overall. Last week, we recorded the episode. It was halfway through the round of 16, so let's just kick it off from there. Monday had some good matches. Deminar versus Medvedev and Sinner versus Zverev kind of stood out in particular as being really high quality. Eric, do you have any matches or parts of those matches that stood out to you? Uh, Yeah, I do. You know, Obviously, I thought that Sinner was going to beat Zverev per the bet of the week last week, but that didn't happen. I don't know why Zverev played so well against Sinner and then just kind of dropped the ball against Alcaraz. It was kind of a anticlimactic comeback, you know, like once he did it, was Zverev back? That's what everyone's thinking. But other than that, you know, just all around great tournament was not really surprised with the result we saw today. Welcome back, Djokovic. But uh, yeah, what about you? What were you thinking? That was Zverev versus Sinner matchup. I think it was a great match, but because it was five sets and because it was such a close one, it really kind of screwed whoever won that match going into the next round because you could tell the conditions were really tough for both of them. I mean, Sinner looked really drained in that match and it was kind of shocking, honestly, that he was able to get through to that fifth set. But I actually thought once it went to that fifth set, Zverev might crumble, but he was able to get it done. And so I think it was an impressive win for Zverev. And I think he is back. I mean, he's a top 10 player again. That's an impressive thing to do. And to make it through as far as he did is really an accomplishment. Yeah, no, not to discount him at all. Just I do think it's one of those situations, kind of like what we saw today where, you know, Medvedev had beaten Alcaraz, but in a sense got, you know, kind of whooped by Djokovic today. Whereas I think Alcaraz would have played Djokovic a lot better and we would have seen probably five sets in a tighter match. I disagree in terms of the term getting whooped. I think even though it was three sets, I think it was relatively back and forth. They were having long, intense points. Mm. And while Djokovic did get the upper hand, I think it really came down to him winning a few key points. I think if someone gets whooped or smoked or whatever term you're going to use, it has to be like the key points didn't really matter because they were so far ahead. Mm -hmm. Right. We can table that. And what did you think of Medvedev and Deminar? I know you were at the match. It was a really cool experience. I was a little tired, to be honest, because I've been sitting essentially in the same seat for six hours by the time that match came on. But it was really cool to see. I mean, I really like both players, but to be honest, I was rooting for Deminar because he's just one of my favorite players on the tour to watch. So I was kind of rooting for the upset. And to me, what really showed in this match was how the levels these players can play are sometimes unsustainable. Because in that first set, Deminar played completely lights out. It was like he wasn't missing anything. But I think the issue is that Medvedev is able to play at such consistently high level, whereas Deminar wasn't able to keep that level that he had in that first set for three full sets. So you think that's what it was? You think Deminar's level dropped off, or do you think Medvedev's level picked up? Here's how I would describe it. I think that Deminar essentially played like 120% in that first set, and say Medvedev played 95 So obviously... Deminar won that first set pretty handedly. I think it was 6-2. But then you go into the next set, and all, all of a sudden, Deminar can't keep up 120% for the whole match. So now all of a sudden, he's playing at like 90%. 
And Medvedev is playing at 95% still. And because of that, Medvedev is able to just break him down in those next three sets. And it's not really the fault of Deminar because Deminar has to play pretty much at 120% to be able to beat Medvedev. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think Medvedev is kind of like Djokovic in this where they'll not give up the first set, but once they lose the first set, they're not worried because they're able to make adjustments from it. So like they'll go through the first set and this is where Medvedev really, and Djokovic, I think that's where they excel. They're, they're able to, to come back and kind of pick apart their opponent. You know, Deminar was great to come out hot, come out fast, but at that point, he didn't really have anything to gain from there. You know, he couldn't really do the same thing he was doing because Medvedev was starting to be a little more meticulous and the level of play just kind of dropped off. So, no, not what I expected after seeing the first set. I thought Deminar was kind of going to cruise. It also comes down to just having that confidence in your game. Medvedev goes into that second set and he has the same level of confidence in his game as he had in the first set, as he had throughout the entire tournament. Whereas I think for most other people, their confidence wavers much more significantly. I think other players seem to get much more boosts of confidence and much more drop-offs of confidence than you see from maybe Medvedev and Djokovic. I agree. And where do you think you see these boosts and drop-offs in confidence? Are they like after sets or the mid-sets? Is it a flip of the switch type of that you notice it or is it kind of a slow draining? I think usually it's a, a flip of a switch and it comes down to usually key points being won. Someone gets a break, someone wins a set and because of how tennis is set up with the scoring being once you've won a game, once you've won a set, the score in that game doesn't matter. For instance, you look at some of these long games that happen. Let's go back to Wimbledon even. When mm -hmm. Alcaraz won that marathon game, yeah, that's a flip of the switch. Alcaraz gets a huge boost of confidence winning that game versus I think that while Djokovic would gain some confidence if he'd won that game, it wouldn't be as much of a momentum shift as Alcaraz winning it. I think the impact more would have been on Alcaraz losing that game versus Djokovic gaining, if you see what I'm saying. No, I, I do. And kind of a follow-up question is, do you think the lack of confidence on the other side comes from the player making errors or the player just getting dominated from the other person, right? Because there's two things where where you can lack confidence. Hey, I'm not playing my best. I'm getting nervous. I'm getting tight. And the and the other side is I just can't. I'm trying my best. I'm doing everything I can. But my opponent is just outplaying me right now. I think when you're playing against Djokovic and Medvedev, you tend to see more of this the latter where mm. they can just kind of wear you down and just not miss shots versus against someone like Alcaraz. I feel like you see more aggression and big shots being hit yeah i mean you kind of saw that in djokovic shelton like djokovic just you know he didn't even let his foot off the gas yeah but i think that was an interesting match sale but we'll, we'll uh -huh. get into that a little yeah later. we'll get it we'll get in later but yeah moving on into the quarters after that round of 16 day i mean djokovic and alcaraz they kind of just cruised through their matchups to be honest alcaraz kind of dominated zverev and djokovic beat fritz pretty handedly so yeah i know Kind of a bummer there. I don't know what I expected with Fritz. I feel like, you know, there was part of me that was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to be his year. But then the uh, realistic part set in. So, yeah, it's weird because I'll be honest, I didn't really follow Fritz's run that closely in this tournament. 
but it didn't seem like he had that difficult of a run to the quarter. Yeah. But then he just got to the quarters and got kind of whooped by Djokovic. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if when you're a player like Fritz and the draw comes out, who you're more afraid of to be on the same side with, Alcaraz or Djokovic? I feel like you have to say Djokovic, right? Because Djokovic is just this titan that you feel like is never going to miss. Whereas I think there's still a level of youth like you believe in yourself because of how young Alcaraz is no matter how good he is you know what I mean yeah I think you saw that today too or not today but Medvedev beating Alcaraz but then not even coming close with Djokovic yeah but then uh just going on to the other quarter Mm -hmm. matches Medvedev played Rublev and he won but it wasn't I think as one-sided as it seemed because there were some breaks back and forth in that match. So it was not like Medvedev was just holding serve the entire time mm-hmm. and never losing anything. There were some points where Rublev was up and you were like, oh, this might be going to some extra sets. And then Medvedev just broke back. But in the end, Medvedev got it done in three sets. And I think that was big. I think having three set matches and not losing a bunch of sets probably helps him going into that match against Alcaraz. Mm-hmm, for sure. So I didn't actually get to catch the full match with Medvedev Rublev. I, I saw the highlights, but did you see a lot of just baseline deep ground strokes? Or Because I feel like both of those guys don't like to come to the net. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, as you're saying, that was kind of what they tended to. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. they came to the net every once in a while, but I feel like they tended toward that type of game. Yeah, because Rublev just whacks the ball. Watching it live when he played Draper, he just swings so hard. And you're like, so much aggression. What is happening? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest match, obviously, was Tiafa versus Shelton from the quarters. Why why do you say that? Because I just think it was the most interesting matchup. I think you had Tiafo, who obviously had been to the semifinals the previous year. He was favored, but Shelton had all this momentum, just beat Tommy Paul. The two Americans, I think the buildup to this match was probably the most interesting. I mean... Rublev versus Medvedev had an interesting buildup since they're both Russian players and their childhood friends. Mm-hmm. But Rublev is um, Medvedev's daughter's godfather. Yeah. So very close relationship <laughs> between those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, obviously Shelton, a shock to be in the quarters. And I think it was he wasn't afraid of the moment. He jumped out and took that first set. Didn't seem afraid of playing Tiafo. Tiafo kind of settled down in that second set. And so they split the first two. You know, you're going to four sets. You know, it's going to be a longer match. Mm-hmm. And the third set was actually really kind of a shocking set because each player got three breaks in the third set. They consistently were able to break their opponent, but then unable to consolidate that break. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like shocking to me just because Shelton's biggest weapon, or at least one of his biggest weapons, is his massive serve. Right. So you would expect him to be able to, if he gets a break, to consolidate it immediately, but he just wasn't really able to do that. Well, that's just part of his immaturity and lack of experience, I think. He was able to get it done, though, in that third set in that in a yeah. close tiebreak. And like we were talking about with confidence swings, I think that tiebreak was a massive confidence swing for both players. I think Tiafo really just lost a lot of confidence. He's like, okay, I'm down two sets to one against this guy. This guy has a lot of momentum. He beat Tommy Paul. He's hitting the shit out of the ball, and it's going in. What do I do? And mm-hmm. I think Shelton skyrocketed. I think he started feeling... I'm up two sets to one. I can do this. I beat Tommy Paul. He's he's thinking the same things in the positive way. I think this was one of those matches where Tiafo had everything to lose, whereas Shelton had only 
something to gain, right? It was kind of, I would relate it back to Eubanks playing Sitsipas in Wimbledon. You know, I think Shelton was able, no one really expected him to win. Like you said, you know, Tiafo was a pretty heavy favorite in there. So Shelton got to get out there, play loose, play, play free. And that's what he does best, like you said. And I think Tiafo, another added pressure was both American too. Tiafo had that amazing semifinal run last year. A lot of people probably expected him to do it again. He probably expected it too. So I just think he kind of melted down there and uh, Shelton took advantage of that. Yeah, I felt the pressure a little bit. Mm-hmm. This was just a massive win for Shelton in the end. I mean, he broke early in that fourth set and kind of took it comfortably in the end. I just think it's huge. I mean, this semifinal appearance put him into the top 20 rankings in the world. That's insane. I mean, he moved up from what, 45, 47? to top 20 that's a huge jump let's see if he can stay there yeah and then obviously the end of the match shelton's nice little hanging up the phone celebration made its first appearance of the tournament do you know the background of that i do not do do you the whole no i don't that's i was wondering i mean uh, maybe he just uh hanging up on the haters or something (laughs) like that i don't know what it is yeah hey if, if anyone knows feel free to leave a comment yeah but that put us in the, the semifinals, mm. which was uh, obviously Djokovic, Shelton, and mm. Alcaraz Medvedev. Yeah, this one was funny. I uh, I watched it on my phone at work, and there would be times where it would be completely silent in the office, and I'd be like, yes, or no. People are like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, nothing. You're like, oh, the stock <laughs> went down, nothing. man. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> no i so we have a tv it's always playing cnbc and before i put it on espn like while the match was leading up and my boss walked by and changed the channel <laughs> so yeah that's when i put it on my phone yeah you're like oh yeah okay. i'm like i'm not i'm not missing this match yeah kidding this was shelton versus Djokovic. yeah 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 because it was during the day it was a 3 yeah. p.m one friday i think in the end this matchup was just the step from Tiafo to Djokovic was just too much in terms of quality. But mm-hmm. I think in the end, Shelton really kind of impressed me in that third set. Because yeah. I think you go into a match against Djokovic, especially as a 20-year-old, there's a huge mental advantage for Djokovic just because of who he is. You go up against Djokovic, and it's like, as confident as you are, there's a level where in your back of your mind, you've got to be just like, shit, I'm going to lose this match. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And so he shows up, you go in and Djokovic gets one break in the first, takes it. And then Shelton actually had a chance to break back at 5-3 in that first set, which I think is crazy because it really shows how much key points can matter. Because if he breaks back at 5-3, all of a sudden he's back on serve and maybe Shelton gains that confidence back. He's like, wait, I can break this guy? Like, that's possible? But then Djokovic won a little more comfortably in the second. But like I was saying, that third set, was really interesting because I think Shelton actually settled in and started to realize, okay, this guy's human. I can beat this guy if I play well enough. Mm-hmm. And so Djokovic broke him early, but Shelton battled and he broke back at 4-3. He actually had a break set point at 4-5. So another critical point. If he wins that point, all of a sudden he could have a massive momentum swing. I just want to set against Djokovic. Mm-hmm. It all of a sudden becomes real after he breaks back, after he wins a set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if Sheldon wins that set and he's thinking, okay, at least I won one set off Djokovic, like without ever thinking he's going to win the match. But, you know, these are professional athletes. I'm sure they're not thinking they're going to lose. I think 
with the type of player that Shelton is, he would have capitalized on the momentum. Mm-hmm. And and Djokovic would have had to raise his level to beat him in a fourth set, in a fifth yeah. set. How did you think Djokovic handled Shelton's serve? Because I feel like the first couple of service games, Shelton, you know, he came out hot and was winning very easily. But then once Djokovic saw it more and more, it was just the serve wasn't as big of a factor as I thought it was going to be. You got to think about the fact that Djokovic is played for so long he's seen so many really good serves i mean he's played against guys like roddick isner mm-hmm. massive serves so when you're at Djokovic's level you have to have other aspects that can push you over the top and not just a massive serve mm-hmm. right all right should we hop into medvedev and alcaraz yeah it's funny because after Djokovic had won that match i'm looking at it i'm like this really shows how much these top three guys are in a league of their own they're just significantly separated from the four through 10 guys. If you look at any of these guys, the only person you could expect to beat one of them would be one of the other two. I mean, Medvedev just, you know, impresses me every time I watch this guy cover the court. I've re- I don't know where my roommate heard this, but he said today, he's like, yeah, the world is covered by 70% water and Medvedev covers the other 30% or something like that. <laughs> That's so, pretty yeah, funny. That's pretty, yeah, he is all over the place. And something I really enjoyed watching during this match was, you know how Alcaraz loves to go with his drop shot? Medvedev was getting there easily and not only like just getting the ball over the net, he was actually taking full swings on the drop shots and hitting him nice and deep where Alcaraz couldn't really do much. So I was, you know, the guy's six six and he moves like he's six feet. It's just crazy considering how deep Medvedev plays. Like you would think the, the drop shot would just be there all day and yet somehow mm-hmm. he's able to get there. He's got to figure out what to do against the serve and volley though. Because if you want a quick point on Medvedev, you just serve and volume i mean we saw Djokovic doing it but alcaraz was also trying to do it and it was pretty successful but i think medvedev was hitting better returns mm-hmm. against alcaraz than he was i agree with that I, I agree for sure do you think that has to do with Djokovic having a stronger serve than alcaraz that that could be it i mean being able to hit his points maybe better like we talked mm-hmm. about like we talked about last week with Shelton being able to improve his serve as time goes on. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see the same thing with Alcaraz. I, I think his serve is going to get more precise as he gets older. And mm-hmm. not that it's not precise now, just that I think Djokovic ha- is able to pinpoint a serve out wide and then a volley. Yeah, well, he's yeah he's been playing for 20 years, so he probably knows every single angle on the court, like where he can serve, what, you know. Exactly. It, it'll, it just takes time, so. Yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, another thing in the Medvedev-Alcaraz match was just Medvedev's double faults. He was serving well, I would say, but he was going for more of a high-risk, high-reward model there where he was going for it all, and he was giving up a lot of free points. Yeah, but I feel like you saw that more in the later sets because early on in that match, Medvedev was killing it on serve. You go over the first set and no breaks from either player, Medvedev takes it in that tie break. But in that second set, Medvedev literally, he lost two points on serve total. And he held the first three service games at love. So he was giving no points to Alcaraz on his serve. Yeah, this this was definitely more towards the end of the match. Yeah. But then in that third set, obviously Alcaraz got the break and just held on to it. Took the third set and regained some, some momentum. And then Medvedev way less dominant early in that fourth set, kind of like you were talking about. I mean... 
He had three break points and held serve at 1-1. And then at 2-3, there was that marathon game. Like, that was an intense game right there. Yeah, it had me on the edge of my seat. I was so tense. I don't know how they play so loosely. I'm not even playing and I'm, you know, a nervous wreck watching. Exactly. You're like, Medvedev, change your strategy. Stop playing so far back. I know. He's I just know. taking advantage of it. But, I mean, in the end, on the 19th point of the game, it worked out for him. So, <laughs> I guess if it works, you can't fault it, but. Yeah, crazy. I mean, it, another thing is, I, it shows that Alcaraz is beatable. Alcaraz is human. I kind of, I was going in rooting for Medvedev just because I I wanted to see kind of a little bit of a switch up. Yeah, I mean, I think people, a lot of people were rooting for Alcaraz just because they wanted to see him play Djokovic again because that matchup has yet to disappoint. Yeah, that. I mean, that. Yeah, like we said last week, that should turn into the next biggest rivalry right now in tennis yeah until Djokovic uh inevitably retires but for Mm -hmm. now for now while Djokovic is still at the top of his game that looks like just the matchup to watch in every tournament Mm -hmm. yeah but uh then two holds a serve and Medvedev has his chance to serve for the match immediately goes down 15 40 so Alcaraz has that chance to break back and Medvedev battles back into it converts on his fourth match point and gets the win. So a couple of things that stood out to me from this match, Alcaraz coming to the net office serve. I think he did it very well. I think he could have done it better. He could have done it better, but it really, like you were saying, showed that Medvedev has to figure out how to deal with that serving ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it seemed like such an effective strategy if Alcaraz right. had a decent serve and a decent volley. Right. And I feel like you can't do it every time on him because he'll expect it. It's just kind of a, I need a free point here. Let me just serve and volley, serve out wide, cut it off, easy volley. Yeah. Like if you get your first serve in, it's like a free point. Yeah, exactly. Second big thing to note was Medvedev's crazy efficiency on break points. Won eight of nine break points. Wow. I think that's, that means that this is kind of an anomaly match. Like you mm-hmm. don't really expect a person to win that many break points because if you look at, just nine random service points you wouldn't expect the returner to win eight of nine that kind of goes into you know one of those cliche sports sayings like in football where they say offense wins games defense wins championships the efficiency on break points that's what separates you and that's what will ultimately win you matches at least in this tournament it didn't win you a slam but it won you the match I think every sport has some sort of saying about mm-hmm. it's a game of inches. It's all about that. The one moment. It's all about those tiny little things mm-hmm. where the game changes. Yeah. Got to capitalize on break points. Exactly. So he did it and he won the match. But yeah, moving on to today's final. I mean, a little bit disappointing. We were hoping for a marathon match kind of, but Djokovic jumped on him early, got, got a break in that first and, that was really all it took, I think. After that break, that first set was very close, I feel like. There was a lot of long strategic rallies, but Medvedev can't break back, and Djokovic takes the first set. And then second set, kind of like that Alcaraz and Medvedev first set, nothing really between them, and goes to a tiebreak. And then with that one critical moment, Djokovic capitalizes on his first set point at 6-5 and takes a set. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was pretty cool that we got to see a little... 2021 rematch especially after Djokovic not being allowed to play last year coming into this year you know revenge match uh Medvedev had beat him in 2021 to ruin the calendar slam 
You know, I just kind of thought Djokovic was coming different. There was no way he was going to lose this match, especially against someone like Medvedev, because I feel like there was that revenge aspect to it. Plus, you know, Djokovic and his crew already had all their 24 gear ready to go. So it's pretty, it's very confident and funny how they, how they do that. Yeah. I also think Medvedev actually explained why Djokovic would end up beating him in the end. And it was because Medvedev was like, if you beat Djokovic, he never comes back the same. He always changes. Mm -hmm. It's not like if you beat Djokovic, he's going to be the same guy that you beat the next time you play him. He's going to have made the changes that were necessary. He's going to look at how you beat him and he's going to be like, okay, that's what I need to work on. That's what I need to change. That's how I need to strategize differently. And he got it done and made those changes to beat Medvedev this time. Yeah, perfect example. Cincinnati too. Alcaraz beats him, Wimbledon championship, and then Djokovic comes back Cincinnati final. He's not losing again. I think that's part of the mentality too. Like you cannot compete with this guy and the whole Mamba mentality too. Just the fact that he's good friends with Tom Brady. He was friends with Kobe Bryant. He appreciates other high performing individuals. And I'm sure they just, you know, jibe with each other, pick each other's brains. Like that is, it's something you can't teach. And you saw in the second set, Djokovic was getting tired, right? Medvedev looked fresh. He was running all over. Djokovic was falling all over the court, putting his hands on his knees. He looked visibly tired. And for him to overcome that and win the tiebreaker, if you're Medvedev, you're thinking, man, I I just tired this guy out. had him literally laying on the floor and he's still able to beat me. Plus, I'm pretty sure it took a toll on Medvedev, too. Remember, you know, I told you, I I have this hypothesis where whoever wins the tiebreaker in like a second set, if you already have one before, will go on to win the match because the person who lost the tiebreaker has to start all the way back over, like win three sets in a row after being down two sets. It's very unlikely. 100%. It's really tough to fight through that. I mean, it's not even like even just losing the first two sets because if you lose the first two sets, you can just be like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is my situation. Now I have to go from here. But I think what happens if you're in a tie break, you're so close that your mind almost kind of gets locked into that. I I was so close. I was so close. And that's all you're thinking about Mm -hmm. in this next set. And it's really hard to forget and move on, but it's what you have to do if you're going to, going to win those matches. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, Djokovic won the match on his first match point. Didn't take him four like it took Medvedev to beat Alcaraz. Just got his first match point and just capitalized. Yeah, did you feel it was kind of anticlimactic when he won? It was just as if he won any other match. I feel like when you win a Grand Slam, you always like drop your racket and fall on the floor for a bit. He just kind of walked over to the net. They did their uh, handshake. And then, and then he fell on the floor and did his whole thing. But I don't know. I, I felt like... After the match, I kind—I of, wanted a little more emotion from Djokovic. Maybe he feels like it's not genuine if he if he forces it. You know what I mean? Dude, maybe it's just getting too easy for him. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> that it's too easy. I just think that it's that he's done it so many times and he knows the feeling. And it wasn't like it was a really close match. Yeah. Like that's in Cincinnati when he won that match and he ripped his shirt completely off. That's kind of what I expected Djokovic to do here. But like you said, you know, it wasn't a tight match. He's been there before. In Cincinnati, 
pent up emotions. Mm-hmm. He lost the Grand Slam final to Alcaraz. Now he beats him in this super tight match. So much intensity there. And so he, he rips his shirt off when he wins that match. This match, think about it. I mean, who, who did he beat? He beat Fritz in the quarters. He beat Shelton in the semis. And then Medvedev doesn't really put up that much of a fight. I mean, three sets. It wasn't like he completely dominated him, but mm-hmm. it wasn't a super tight match either, really. Like, it wasn't super intense. I think it was high-quality tennis, Yeah, but not the closest match. So he doesn't have that built up pressure to make that uh-huh. exploding of emotions almost. Yeah. Even though it was only three sets, it was a pretty long match. I know the second set took what, like an hour 45. Those points are long drawn out. I mean, I really enjoy, I, I enjoyed watching. It was a very like strategic match. Yeah. I mean, I saw a stat at one point that was like the average rally was seven shots or something like that. Yeah. that That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, because usually, usually mm-hmm. that gets dragged down by the fact that a lot of rallies are one, three, mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah. it seemed like every single time the return got back, it was just at least like a 10-point rally. Right. And I said it a little before when Medvedev was playing Alcaraz, but I really commemorate him on his backhand angles where he'll run up to these drop shots and flick, you know, like the slide because he's a tall guy and these balls are very low. So he'll kind of like get low and then just flick with his backhand. And it's such a beautiful shot. 100%. But yeah, that was a, that was a final. That was so a final. Uh, you want to hop into segments? Let's do it. What I really saw, what stuck out uh, as far as what's new was Ben Shelton. For being how young he is, is, you know, very, very well media trained, well spoken, super calm, cool, collective, and when he was in the press conference after the Djokovic match, they asked him if he saw the celebration that Djokovic did. A uh, little background. So after the match, Djokovic did the hang up the phone celebration. Don't think he was like mocking Shelton, but, you know, to use someone else's celebration against them in their home country. little disrespectful, in my opinion, but it's Djokovic. He's, you know, he, he's going to do what he wants. That's him. He's the competitor. He's. He's not there to make friends. He's there to win. And if he if he pisses people off, he pisses people off. But one of the reporters asked Shelton if he saw it, and Shelton didn't see it in the moment. I feel like if he would have seen it in the moment, their handshake would have been a little different. Anyway, in the press conference, he goes, "Yeah, you know, uh, I always learned this when I was a kid that imitation is the most or the sincerest form of flattery." So he claps back. I think that is the best response you can have you know he didn't get phased he was very very cool about it and uh like i said i'm just impressed with how he handled the situation my take on the situation was what Djokovic was saying is that you shouldn't be doing this celebration you should respect these players even if you beat them i do think if shelton ever plays Djokovic and beats him at wimbledon he should eat the grass oh my god <laughs> he should do Djokovic's signature wimbledon celebration that'd be him. crazy that would be awesome all right what did, what did you see out there in the tennis world i saw a post on tennis.com that said that the wta and atp tours might merge and to me the first thing i thought is how would this really change things there'd be one governing bo- governing body but I don't know. Would it be better or worse? Wouldn't one governing body just mean that there's less focus for each of the the sides of the tournament? That's what that's my first thought. And it's not like it, the payment is different. Like the big thing they were focusing on the U.S. Open this year was 
that equal the payments time. were equal. So it's mm-hmm. it's not like the payment is different and once they merge, it's going to be the same. Like, what is the big change that's going to happen here? I know this has been, you know, a topic of discussion where they've been trying to consolidate each Grand Slam is, is its own entity too. And then there's the two tours. I think they are also talking about merging all the Grand Slams together too, or like creating one, like I said, governing body, one entity. So... Yeah, I don't know. I can't really speak too much on this yet as far as the benefits that we'll see. But I guess I, I know you brought this up just before looking at the WTA website versus the ATP website. Um, maybe shared resources would would be beneficial. You know, I, I mean, I really can't think of an immediate uh, benefit to this. Yeah. You want to get into a better of the week? Yeah, pretty slow week, huh? Not not a lot of action. Um, yeah, my bet is Maxime Cressy minus one thirty five over Emilio Nava. Uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of going with the gut here. He's an American. I recognize his name. Um, and one thirty five minus one thirty five doesn't seem terrible for Cressy. You know, I feel like he's a pretty respectable player. Honestly, I I should be taking a week or two off of betting just after the amount of degenerate moves I made during this U S open. But yeah, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss U S open betting. It was so much fun. Just bet on Djokovic on every match and you would have probably (laughs) won a lot of money. Oh my gosh. No. Um, Anyway, what, what was your bet or what is your bet of the week? My bet of the week is uh, Lucas Pouille plus plus one forty over Constant Lestien. I just picked him because I recognize Pui's name. He's a player that I've seen in bigger tournaments. And uh, that's really my rationale. And I think it becomes way harder to pick in these challenger or lower level tournaments because you just know less, I feel like, about the players. You you could he could be playing anybody. You don't you don't know as much about some of these guys and what could happen. So mm-hmm. my my rationale is I recognize Pui's name more. So yeah, that's pretty funny. That's funny. All right, how about match of the week? My match of the week, we kind of discussed it earlier. Mm-hmm. Zverev over Sinner, 6-4-3-6, We detailed the match. Zverev, it's actually his fourth straight win over Sinner. Mm-hmm. What's funny to me about this is that Sinner's only win actually came in their first meeting when Sinner was just inside the top 100 and Zverev was actually inside the top 10. So that was a massive upset when Sinner actually won that match. And now it's kind of flipped and where it's Sinner's the favorite. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was Medvedev beating Alcaraz just because, well, that score was 7-6-6-1-3-6-6-3. Yeah, we talked about it before, but I this was a match. I feel like in the tournament, I didn't really have a whole lot of matches where I was really rooting for one player, right? It was mostly, hey, I just want to see good tennis. I want to see five sets. But this match, I was fully invested into Medvedev. You know, I had made a couple risky bets and I had already told other people some risky bets too. So if they didn't pay out, I would have felt responsible. Anyway, this is like a match I really locked into, watched the whole thing, and I just loved it. I I love the way Medvedev handles the crowd too because the crowd was very, very pro Alcaraz. 100%. It's tough. It is tough. And I just, that's what I'm saying. I'm kind of a... I don't 
want to call myself a contrarian, but I like to root for the underdog. You know, if everyone's going for Alcaraz, I'm going to go for Medvedev. The thing that I didn't like was that the crowd was actually having an impact on the play because of how much they were rooting for Alcaraz. Like Medvedev yeah. would be going to serve and all of a sudden they're all just yelling. And then in between first and second serve, yeah. they're yelling again. And the, the umpire just keeps going, please, please. Yeah. There's nothing he can really do about it, but it's just, I think that the crowd should respect how the match is going and not try to have an unfair influence for one player. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Like you said, the umpire, it was the first time I've ever heard an umpire say, hey, like, please, we have we have to keep it fair for both players. Exactly. Never heard that before. And it's just kind of crazy that fans would even do that. But no, I loved it. Like I said before, Alcaraz is beatable. He's not, you know, invincible like everyone thinks he is. 100%. All right. And that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.